Well, good morning to all of you. If you would turn with me uh, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. We're going to be looking at Matthew 28, uh, verse 16. Let me pray as you turn there for our time together in the Word. Father, we just thank you so much for the privilege and the blessing that it is to be gathered this morning together in your name. With you present here among us and in us, we thank you for your work that you have begun in us that you will see to completion. We thank you that you are the author and perfecter of our faith, that you are our Lord and our Savior, that you are everything, Lord. You are our greatest treasure. And Lord, we long to become like you. That's our goal, to be like Christ, our Lord. We pray that your word would do its work in us, that through the powerful, uh, transforming work of the gospel, that we would be made more into the image of Christ. I pray that we would not just hear these words of Jesus this morning, but that we would long to do them and actually do them. Give us the grace and the strength to do that through your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing again, like Milton said, the uh, winter seminar, and the title of the message this morning is Making Disciples Together, Fulfilling Our Mission and Our Greatest Calling. And our text is Matthew 20, a familiar passage, I believe, to all of us. Uh, but hopefully this morning it will, uh, I, I trust, come alive to you in, in a, a new way. Uh, let me start by saying this. Every one of us is a disciple of someone or something. And everyone is making disciples of something or someone. Sadly, some of the best disciple makers are unbelievers. Uh, in 1914, jiu-jitsu master Isai Meda, that's not on whose picture here, Isai Meda immigrated to Brazil from Japan. He would go uh, on to teach his techniques of Japanese jiu-jitsu to a family by the name, the last name of Gracie. Helio Gracie was one of several children who learned jiu-jitsu under Maeda. This is Helio here. Because Helio was physically frail and ill, though, he had to modify the techniques to accommodate his very weak body. And it was out of this changing of these techniques of Japanese jiu-jitsu that what is now commonly known as Brazilian jiu-jitsu was born. Helio would go on later in life to challenge and fight 18 times in Brazil against some of the greatest martial artists in the country and, uh, and go on to prove the effectiveness of his techniques. Uh, Helio had... Eight sons, all of whom studied under their father and mastered the techniques of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. They each have now in turn gone on to train and teach their own children and others the way of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. In 1993, one of Helio's sons, Hoist Gracie, represented the family in what would be known as the first ultimate fighting championship. At only 178 pounds, much smaller in fact, the smallest fighter of them all. Hoist beat all three of his opponents in the same night to become the first ever UFC champion. From that point on, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu became famous. People from all over the world sought to be disciples under the Gracie family. Now headquartered in Torrance, California, they teach to, uh, to tens of hundreds, tens of thousands probably, uh, and they have training sites all over the world on every major continent. Since 1920. Five, over 40 members of the Gracie family have committed or dedicated their lives to the practice and the dissemination of the techniques and philosophy of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, making them the largest family of athletes in the world. They're not only disciples of their father and grandfather Helio, but they live to make disciples of others who long to learn and live for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I have to agree with Jeff Vanderstel, pastor of Soma Communities Church in Tacoma, Washington, when he says this, I'm convinced we don't have a disciple-making problem at all. We have plenty of people who are making disciples who make disciples. We have plenty of disciple-makers. The question is this, what are we making disciples of? And that's the question for us this morning. I have two questions for you. One, are you a disciple of Jesus? And number two, are you making disciples of Jesus. I believe that of all the things that we're to be doing together, and this is a seminar on togetherness, what we as the body of Christ, the church, are to be doing both individually and together in community. I believe of all the things that we're to be doing together, the most important is glorifying God by being disciples who make 
disciples. And so this morning I want to offer you four truths, four truths for making disciples together. Four truths that will help us fulfill our mission and our calling of being disciples who make disciples. And I want to begin with the first point, and I want you to go with me to Matthew twenty-eight sixteen. The first truth in this text this morning is that making disciples is God's mission and our greatest calling. Notice the text. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. It says that the eleven met Jesus in Galilee at a predetermined mountain. Jesus, both before his death and resurrection and then even after, would give the disciples directions to meet him in Galilee. And it says that when they saw him, they literally fell down. They, they prostrated themselves in worship before him. But it says some doubted. And I believe what they were doubting wasn't whether Jesus was really raised from the dead. I think they had already, he had already appeared to them several times before this. What they were doubting was something greater than that. They were doubting Jesus' position. You see, they believed that they should have been in Jerusalem reigning with Jesus over the Romans and over the Jewish leadership instead of standing on a mountain in Galilee with him. And their question was, is this one truly still the Son of Man? Is this the Messianic King who would rule over his kingdom? And so Jesus approaches them and he answers them. He answers that doubt by saying this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Jesus' response is amazing because it's an illusion. It's an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, specifically verse 14. But notice verse 13. This is a vision of Daniel. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus was indicating to his disciples the very truth that he was still indeed the son of man, the promised Messiah, the king of kings and the Lord of lords who would indeed rule over all and be glorified by all. And Jesus' response was meant to both encourage and embolden his disciples, to live for the mission that he would give them on this mountain in Galilee. You see, without a confidence in the reign and in the lordship of Christ, our lives have no purpose or direction. If Christ has not conquered, then being his disciple would be futile. And any mission to make disciples would be pointless. Jesus is telling us, I have not been defeated. My plan has not been shaken. I am still and always will be the Son of Man, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. My mission will be accomplished I am the king and my kingdom is coming. And my kingdom is coming through you who are the way that I will build my kingdom until the end of the age. You see, Jesus is pointing in, 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 in indicating that all this authority has been given to him. He's pointing the disciples back to Daniel. He's saying the first part of Daniel 7.14 has been fulfilled. The father, the ancient of days, has given me all authority. He has given me this dominion and glory and a kingdom. What has not happened yet is that all peoples, nations, and languages are serving me. That has not taken place yet. And it's up to you. I'm using you to make that come to pass. I want you to build my kingdom so that there are people. All peoples and nations and languages will serve me. You see, we realize here that God's mission Ultimately, it's for his glory. I love what John Piper says. He says, worship is the goal and the fuel of missions. Missions exists because worship doesn't. That is to say, the Great Commission, making disciples, exists in order to fulfill Daniel 7.14. Because this isn't taking place yet. It's to fulfill Daniel 7 so that God is ultimately worshipped one day by all peoples from all nations and all languages 
And so that ultimately God gets the glory. This should encourage us because the fact that God's mission is for his glory means it's not going to fail. Piper goes on to say the global cause of Christ cannot fail and nothing you do in this cause is in vain. Not only is God's mission ultimately for his glory, but God has given us his mission and it is to be our greatest calling, our greatest calling. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. What Christ is signifying is the mandate, the calling of every disciple, every single one of his disciples, that they fulfill the mission of building the kingdom by making by being disciples who make disciples. This is our mission. This is our greatest calling. The greatest calling, listen to this, the greatest calling of every Christian is not your vocation. It's not what you do for work, to be a doctor, to be a lawyer, to be a teacher. That is not your greatest calling. It's true that God can and does call us to what we do for work as a vocation. But our ultimate calling, our greatest calling is this. The greatest calling of every Christian and of the church is to be disciples who make disciples. To know him and to make him known. To love God and to love others by doing the most loving thing that we could do, pointing them to follow him, to love him, to be disciples of him. That's our greatest calling. And everything else where we live, what we do, that's all a means to that ultimate end. We live on this earth now to fulfill that calling of being disciples who make disciples. This is the mission. And so we don't get confused. I want to clarify some, I think, misconceptions about the mission. Because often we have some baggage with regard to the Great Commission. Number one, it's the mission, it's a mission and calling for every disciple of Jesus Christ. The, the word missions is not a bad word, but often when we use the word missions, what we're saying is it's something that missionaries do. So I'm over here and they're over there and people like Juanita Fike who came and visited with us and hung out with us all last week and blessed us with her presence. Juanita is a missionary and she's over there and she does missions and I am over here and do what I do. And I, I for largely live my life and go to work and do all these things and I give Jesus some token moments here and there. That's not the reality here. We are all missionaries. We're all full-time, every day, 24 hours a day, missionaries. We're all disciple-making disciples. The word missional has become kind of a buzzword, and there's all sorts of missional churches. There's a missional church movement that sprung up over the last 10 years. And a lot of what people mean by that word missional, fortunately, is they mean, they kind of water it down to kind of social gospel, food pantry, cleaning up the park for Christ, that kind of stuff. And those sort of things aren't bad in of themselves. But the real word missional is not a bad word. And it's true biblical definition. To be missional is to be committed to the mission of being disciples who make disciples. And we're here at Cornerstone called to be a missional church. And our care groups are to be missional communities. That's another buzzword, missional communities. And it's not a bad word. We're to be missional communities. Our care groups are to be places where we're committed to the mission of being disciples who make disciples. Every believer is thus to live a life on mission. I love that term, on mission. We are on mission as missional missionaries. So... That's one point about the mission. There's another misconception, that, uh, and, and it's solved in this, that it's a mission that spans to all peoples. Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, literally of all people groups, language groups, ethnic groups, cultures, not simply the 196 nations that exist on the earth. According to the Joshua Project, and you can go there, joshuaproject.com, there are 16,565 distinct people groups which comprise the 6.92 billion people on the planet. And out of those 16,565, there are 7,107 unreached people groups, which comprise nearly 3 billion people. And they define unreached as less than 2% of those people groups being evangelicals or less than 5% being Christian adherents. In the 1040 window itself, out of those 7,107 total unreached people groups, there are 6,074 unreached people groups. And so our goal, the mission is to make disciples of all peoples. And when we hear these kind of statistics, it's staggering. Who has not been reached for Christ? All the work that remains to do. But you, you have to understand that it's both global and local. It's both here and there. Go means make disciples, whether you stay or go. The, the command to go is to make disciples. 
whether you're here or whether you're there. In the United States, there are 481 people groups. 93 are unreached people groups. According to Winfield Bevins in his book, Grow, Reproducing Through Organic Discipleship, he says that out of the approximately 400 million people in the United States, 120 million people are now unchurched people. And how he defines that is people who have no clear personal understanding of the message of the gospel and who have had little or no contact with a Bible-teaching, Christ-honoring church. 120 million out of 400, roughly 400 million people in the U.S. And that number is only going to go up. So our mission is, whether it's here or there, is to go and to make disciples of all peoples. And lastly, I want to clear this up, that it's a mission that involves both making and maturing disciples. I think we all agree that about the definition of a disciple. A disciple is literally a student or a learner. It's, it's someone who associates with their teacher and masters uh, in order to learn from him and become like him. Uh, and we all would agree that a disciple of Jesus is a follower of Jesus. I think where we get mixed up is in our understanding of terms like make disciples, evangelism, and discipleship. And here's what we traditionally think. We think that making, disciple, making disciples is either evangelism or discipleship. And what we mean by evangelism often is we, we, many people can define making disciples as only evangelism, meaning they only predominantly see making disciples as making converts of unbelievers. And this is dangerous to separate both evangelism and discipleship into two distinct things. Um, evangelism is concerned with unbelievers and making them disciples. And the danger here of kind of overemphasizing just making disciples as evangelism is that it, it kind of makes conversion the end goal. And so if people come to an event and they hear someone speak, they're to be converted. And that's the end. And then where they go and what they do after that, largely no one knows. And no one really cares and there's no direction given. And so a life of obedience and devotion to Christ kind of is optional. And the gospel, unfortunately, often not always, but often can become kind of your get-out-of-jail-free card at the end. So you get converted here. That's kind of the goal. We're done. You're converted. We made the disciple. And then whatever goes on between here and when you die, it doesn't really matter. You kind of cash in the gospel at the end. We can often be there, or we can be uh, kind of make the same mistake and danger if we separate these two things and kind of focus on discipleship. And in that regard, it's, it's kind of people who are concerned with believers and maturing disciples. And the danger there is that, again, when we separate evangelism and discipleship, often we leave the gospel over here and we, we seek to, um, with, when the, with the believer, we seek to um, move beyond the gospel to become really what ends up becoming, it becomes a performance-based system of rule-keeping through the practice of disciplines and learning and service and, and, and on and on. And there's danger in that. I think the Bible does not separate evangelism and discipleship. Instead, making disciples is about both making and maturing them through evangelism, through evangelizing both unbelievers and believers. I think the better way to draw it is this. Making disciples equals discipleship. That is what it means to make disciples, is to, to engage in discipleship. And the way we do that is through evangelism or evangelizing. We take the transforming power of the gospel and we bring it to bear on the lives of people, whether they know Christ or they don't know Christ, so as to make them greater followers of Jesus Christ. No one ever finishes becoming a disciple. And no, no one ever moves on beyond the gospel. And so evangelism, as we'll see later on, is the greatest tool that we have to make disciples. Making disciples and discipleship is what we're called to do. That's the mission. That's our calling. We do it through evangelizing people, bringing the gospel to bear in word and deed through our lives so that we do that in the lives of both unbelievers and believers so that, Lord willing, they become greater followers of Jesus Christ. That's the mission. Now, let's move on to point number two. Making disciples involves making people followers of Jesus Christ. We're not seeking to make people disciples of us but of the Lord. Our mission is to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus. And we could define a disciple as this. A disciple is a follower of Jesus who knows him, who loves him, who lives for him, who trusts him, who glorifies him, and is becoming like him. And Jesus says we do this in two ways. Notice the passage. He says in Matthew twenty eight, nineteen, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
Now understand this. So it's, it's through the baptizing and teaching. But understand what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to way more, folks, than just dunking people into water and teaching them a bunch of rules. That's not what the mission is. It's much more than that. And I, I, I hope that as we dive into this passage, we'll see the richness and the depth of what Jesus is really calling us to. And let's start with baptizing. Baptism here is not simply denoting literal water baptism, although it certainly includes that. And I think Jesus had that on his mind. It's, I think it's biblical and it's a mandate from Christ. It's an ordinance that we baptize people literally, physically, in water, immersing them into water. But I think what Jesus is calling us to do in immersing people into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it goes beyond this water baptism. Because water baptism simply symbolizes this immersion that is baptism. And through baptism, we're immersed into several things. We're immersed into a new reality. We're in, through baptism, through the truth and the power of the gospel, being immersed into the gospel, we, we experience regeneration, the forgiveness of sins, death to sin's power and enslavement. We experience what scripture calls being born again. Being made new, a new creature. All things are new, the scripture says. And so, as we're baptized, we're immersed into this new reality. Through baptism, we're also immersed into a new identity. Baptism is a very community experience where we're baptized into relationship with the triune God and not only him, but his body, which is the church. So we're baptized into this new identity. We're no longer black or white or Asian or rich or poor. All these distinctive socioeconomic, ethnic, whatever you want to identify yourself by. Your identity now on this side of regeneration, on this side of being a disciple of Christ, is you have a new identity as a person who's in community with the triune God and with his body. You are by definition a person in community. Not only that, but we're baptized into a new purpose. Baptism into a new life of living for God and for his glory, magnifying him, living to exalt him and make him famous and no longer ourselves according to our flesh and in our own sin. We no longer live for our name, but we are immersed into his name, his person, so that all of us, all of our being is seeking to make much of him and live for him and no longer for ourselves. So notice that in this passage, baptism is literally into, not in, but the Greek preposition into the name of the triune God. And MacArthur is, does well to point out that this, this name, this name of the triune God is the fullness of his person, encompassing all that he is, all that he has and all that he represents. We are baptized into Christ so that the goal is knowing him, immersion into relationship, into community with the triune God. Not, not simply to know facts about God, but to truly know him relationally in community with him. Jesus says in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's the goal of immersion. That's the goal of us immersing people. Is that we're immersing them into a relationship with God. We're seeking to immerse them into having a deeper and greater relationship with God. Not only knowing him, but living for him. We're seeking to baptize people into the name of the triune God so that they find all of their identity, all of their meaning, all of their worth, all of their purpose, all of their joy, their hope, their satisfaction, their fulfillment in knowing him. So it's not just living for him, but it's living in him and with him. Paul says, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So what we're seeking to do when we make disciples of people, we're, making, we're seeking to make people followers of Jesus by immersing people into relationship with the triune God so that they know him, so that they come to live for him. Well, not only that, but we're, we're called to teach. Jesus says, literally, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Make, make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Which means that Jesus wants us to teach people. But not simply the commands of Christ, but how to obey them. Many of what, much of what Jesus taught was gospel. And so it makes the gospel very important to what we're to teach. And many of the commands weren't just rules. They were, they were, they were commands like, abide in me, believe in me, feast on me. But Jesus isn't, notice what Jesus isn't saying. He isn't just saying, teach them all that I commanded you. No, he's saying, teach people to obey all that I've commanded you. 
which really means that we're trying to get behind in, in, in deep into the heart, into the motivation of how to help people to obey Christ. This means that teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you really involves teaching people how to love Christ, since one who loves Christ will long to obey him. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Here's the commandments, and the keeping of them is not the love. Here's the love. It's this strong desire and affection for Christ. And he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You'll do what I'm calling you to do. Love leads to obedience. And as disciple makers, we can motivate people, we can teach people how to obey out of guilt, out of tradition, out of duty, out of fear of going to hell or whatever else. But that will not produce the obedience that pleases and honors and glorifies Jesus. We have to remind people that in seeking to obey Christ, they're not seeking to obey him to earn favor with him or to find or earn their own justification. They're living inside of the good of all that Christ has already accomplished. And what they're seeking to do is obey him out of a heart that's been loved by him and now loves him in response. And so really teaching people to obey is going to be teaching people to love Christ so that they will obey. It's not only that, but it's teaching people to trust Christ since we must believe that Christ's commands are not simply rules, but they're, they're life, they're pleasure and joy and goodness. Jesus goes on in John 15, a chapter later, and he says, he kind of flips it. In John 14, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He flips it. And he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Jesus says, if the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. And we could say, where would we abide in your love? Lord, where can we do that? How do we do that? He says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Jesus is saying, inside of my commands, inside of my words to you, inside of my will for you, all that I've given you is my love. If you're in here, you will experience all of my goodness and my love and pleasure and joy. And so we have to trust Christ that inside of this, that all Christ's commands are to be seen as good. And rather than just rules, they are blessed. They're the blessing and the wisdom of God. John Piper says, when these, com- when these demands are seen for what they really are, they turn the absolute authority of Jesus into a treasure chest of holy joy. When the most glorious person in the universe pays all my debts and then demands that I come live with him and enter into his joy, there can be no more desirable demand imaginable. To such a one, I say with Augustine, command what you wish, but give me what you command. And that is our heart when we're trusting Christ. Give me all that you've promised me. Let me enter into all that you've commanded me. Because it's there that I'll find and experience your love and your joy. It's not only teaching people to love Christ and to trust Christ, but teaching them to observe or to obey. Jesus is also teaching them to glorify Christ. Since the goal of obedience is God's glory, not simply obedience. Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, obedience, understand this, obedience is a means to the ultimate end, and that is the glory of God. We don't just obey to just obey and be done. We are obeying so that God would get glory from that obedience, whether someone sees it, in this case of Matthew 5, 16, or someone doesn't see it, that God would be pleasured and pleased with our obedience. That's the goal of obedience, not just obedience. And so, teaching people to obey all that Jesus commanded, teaching them to observe all that, it's teaching people to love Christ, to trust Christ, to glorify Christ. And this last one, it's teaching people to become like Christ. Since the result of observing all that Jesus taught is becoming more like him. In Luke 6.40, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. When he's fully equipped, when he's fully restored, when he's fully trained up, he will be like his teacher. Our goal is to immerse ourselves into obedience and the observation of Christ, all that Christ has given us, his words, because inside of there is there's the power to transform us. There's the power to change us, to become more like Christ. And that's our ultimate goal. We want to be like Jesus. So teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you involves not only teaching people the commands of Jesus, but ultimately it really means motivating people to obedience out of love and trust for Christ in order to glorify him and become like him. This is our mission, to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus. Jesus says we do this in two ways, by immersing people and by motivating them. How do we immerse people and how do we motivate people to obey? And this leads us to the third point, with the gospel. With the gospel. 
Making disciples requires evangelizing people with the transforming power of the gospel. Our mission is to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus. And what Jesus is calling us to do requires evangelism. It requires evangelizing. That is bringing the transforming power of the gospel to bear on people's lives so that they're changed and grow into becoming greater followers of Jesus. Now, I know there's, there's many tools out there that, that, we, that we're dependent upon in, in, in making disciples. We're dependent on prayer and the Holy Spirit and other things. But... We need to understand that the gospel is one of our greatest tools. It is the greatest tool. There's nothing inside of you or me that's going to make a disciple. I have nothing to give you that makes a disciple in and of myself. It is the gospel that is inside of me. That's where the power of God resides, inside of the gospel. And we need to make this clear because I want you to understand that making disciples without the gospel is utterly hopeless and extremely dangerous. Without the gospel, evangelism among unbelievers leads to this kind of empty social gospel of self-betterment. where We're just trying to improve people's lives. And without the gospel, evangelism among believers leads again, like we talked about earlier, to a performance-based system of rule-keeping that tends towards legalism, judgmentalism, and that ultimately really fails to transform the person into a greater follower of Jesus Christ. Jonathan Dotson, in his book, Gospel-Centered Discipleship, talks about experiences he's had in the past in Christian circles, in accountability groups, in discipleship groups, where the goal got off the gospel and onto other things, in rule-keeping and things like that. He says it's so easy for making disciples to focus on performance instead of the gospel. And often, I'm sure you've had these kind of experiences in an accountability group where you're given a list of accountability questions. And often, these are negative questions about whether or not we did what we shouldn't do instead of asking questions about what we should do or should have done. And here are some examples that he gives. Have you exposed yourself to any sexually explicit material? Have any of your financial dealings lacked integrity? And usually the last question on the bottom of the list is, have you lied in any of the questions above? He goes on to describe his experiences in these kind of groups, these kind of discipleship groups, where the punishment for failure was, uh, in one case, uh, paying money into a jar. They'd pay 10 bucks. Uh, usually 10 bucks was the highest for sexual sin. If they had looked at something you know, inappropriate on the Internet or something like that, they'd put 10 bucks in this jar. This is what he says about all this. He says, instead of holding one another accountable for belief in the gospel, we became accountable for exacting punishments. The unfortunate result is a kind of legalism in which peer prescribed punishments are substituted for repentance and faith in Jesus. As a result, our motives for holiness get twisted. Confession in such contexts is relegated to keeping from sin, making discipleship a duty-driven, rule-keeping journey. See, we need to understand this. Being a disciple is a fight. It is a fight. It's, but it's not primarily a fight to obey or keep rules. It is not a fight to perform. Here's what it is. It's a fight to know and believe and live inside of the good of the gospel. That's what the fight is to be a disciple. When Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, Paul was telling Timothy, you need to fight the fight of faith, the fight of faith to know and to believe and to take hold of and live inside of the good of the gospel which you confess in the presence of many witnesses. That's the fight. And every disciple, each one of us, you and I, we're always struggling to believe the truths of the gospel. Truths about who God is. Truths about what he's done. Truths about who we were before Christ and who we've become. And our job as evangelists, as disciple-making disciples, whether dealing with an unbeliever or a believer, is this, to determine what gospel deficiencies are present, what gospel truths are not being embraced by faith, and then bring the power of the gospel to bear on those blind spots in the lives of our brothers and sisters or in the lives of someone who doesn't know Christ yet. Our job is simply and always to evangelize both unbelievers and believers. And this is really exciting because it really destroys kind of another misconception about discipleship. That discipleship, and again, when we're using discipleship among believers, that it's really just for mature believers who have arrived. We often have this conception of discipleship where it's kind of like this bad pyramid scheme, like Amway. And my goal is to have lots of people under me, disciple-ease, who I somehow disciple because I've arrived. And I'm not discounting any of this older, wiser person to a younger, more immature person. That is part of discipleship. But what the exciting thing is, is that truly, biblically, discipleship is also very mutual. It's very mutual. I never arrive at a place where I don't need to be evangelized anymore. And so your job is to evangelize me 
with the gospel. And my job is to evangelize you by bringing the power of the gospel to bear in your life and reminding you of gospel truths and helping you to live in the good of the gospel and live out the gospel in your life. And the good news is that if you understand and can proclaim the gospel, then you can make disciples. You don't have to arrive at a certain pace. You don't have to hit 50 and then do this. This is for anybody who can understand and proclaim the gospel. You can be a disciple-making disciple. And it's amazing how early in Jesus' ministry he begins to send out people to proclaim the gospel and to evangelize both believer, unbelievers and those even who were professing faith in Christ. Making disciples seen this way is not simply a top-down enterprise. It's a very bottom-up calling where we serve one another by evangelizing others with the transforming power of the gospel so that we make each other better followers of Jesus Christ. And this happens in two main ways. It happens by baptizing and teaching. It happens by immersing and motivating. You see, it's only the gospel and being immersed in the gospel that immerses us into relationship with the triune God. It's through the gospel that I come to know the Father who loved us, who chose us, who predestined us, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, who adopted us as his sons, who no longer has any anger toward us, with whom we have eternal peace. It's through the gospel that I come to know the Son who gave himself for us, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins, who lavishes us with grace, who intercedes for us as our great high priest, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, our great example, our Lord, our Savior. It's through the gospel that I come to know the Spirit, who is the promise of our inheritance, who dwells in us, who comforts us, who guides us, who instructs us, who empowers us to live for Christ and become like him, who opens our eyes that we might behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. Only through the gospel and immersing people into the gospel can we baptize people into the name, into the person, into relationship with the triune God of the universe. And it's only the gospel that shows us how amazing this God is and how he's so much better, far greater than anything else. It's only the beauty of the gospel that reveals how amazing, how precious the Lord is so that all of our identity, all of our meaning, all of our worth, all of our purpose, all of our joy and our hope and our satisfaction is found in him and in nothing else. Jesus says we're to teach them to obey and what he's calling us to ultimately do is to motivate people with the gospel. Only the gospel can transform us to love Christ as we are continually brought face to face with the love of Christ for us and what he has done for us. Only the gospel can transform us to trust Christ as we see his commands as love and as blessing and as joy and and live and seek to live inside of them. It's only the gospel that can transform us to glorify Christ as we're amazed by him and so amazed that we seek to live for him and to make much of him. It's only the gospel that can transform us to become like him as we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ and by his spirit through the power of the gospel are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Only the gospel can do this. Our mission is to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus by immersing people and motivating people with the transforming power of the gospel. Now, how and where do we immerse people and motivate people with the gospel? This leads us to the last point, the last truth. In community. In community. Making disciples takes place in the relational context of community. Our mission is to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus, immersing them and motivating them with the transforming power of the gospel in very deep and intimate relationships. Often we think of this as informal settings on Sunday or here or there or in classrooms. And, and I don't discount any of that, but it's so much more than that. What we start to realize in making disciples is that making disciples takes place as ordinary people live ordinary lives with gospel intentionality. This is where it takes place. I don't just immerse my children into the gospel and motivate them with the gospel for 45 minutes one day a week in the living room with a tie on. I do that all the time, all the time, as we eat together, as we shop together, as we go about our business together, as we do chores together. And this is what Jesus is calling us to, is a, a, a living in community with people where, we, where it's just ordinary people in ordinary life with very intentional with gospel intentionality. And so we're to practice several things here. We're to practice... Maybe someone can flip this out here. There we go. Okay. We're to practice intentionality. 
We do everything for the mission of making disciples. Everything we do is about people. Our mission is all about people, so our lives must be all about people. Everything we do is to, is to be about bringing the gospel to bear in the lives of people. So we're intentional. We do, we do, we do. Not only that, but we practice association. We pursue relationships with people. And it's mutual. We not only pursue relationships with people, but we let people pursue relationship with us in order that they can do this to us. We have to remember that we are the sent ones. Jesus said, go, therefore, and make disciples. He didn't just say, sit and wait. He said, go out, do this, be doing this. So we don't wait for people to come to us, although we can expect that God will bring us people and bring people our way. But we must be intentional and aggressive about pursuing and cultivating genuine, loving, sacrificial relationships with people. We live together with others and orient all of ourselves and all of our lives around people. If we're to evangelize people, we need to know where they really are. And so we get to know people intimately, listening to them, learning them, earning the right to speak into their lives so that they will listen. So, so much evangelism often is very incredulous. It's just coming up to someone and blasting them with truth um, and smacking them upside the face when we don't even know this person. And it's kind of, and I'm not saying that cold evangelism is, is, is wrong, but I think what Jesus is calling us to is something much more intimate and real. I think he's calling us to know people and to love them and to walk with them and bring the gospel to bear in their lives as someone who cares about them and where they know that. And I think Jesus modeled this. Obviously, he had, very, I mean, he had, he had encounters, evangelistic encounters with people where he did, he did bring difficult, the difficult and, and, and offensive news of the gospel to bear on their lives. But what Jesus really did is he became Emmanuel, God with us. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. And he took the initiative. He pursued relationship with his disciples. He pursued them and, and got into their lives so as to know them and bring the gospel to bear into their lives. We not only practice intentionality and association, but we practice impartation. That is, we give our lives away and everything we have. We give away the gospel. We give away our gifts, our love, our time, our energy, our resources, our homes, our families, everything. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I love what John Piper says. He says, Jesus' followers do not kill to extend the kingdom. They die. Jesus' followers do not kill to extend his kingdom. They die. And if Jesus is calling us to be willing to lay down our lives for people, he certainly is calling us to be willing to give away our lives and everything we have for the sake of the gospel and the mission, the calling that he's given us. Paul did this. He modeled this. He told the Thessalonians, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very Dear to us. Jesus and Paul didn't come out passing scrolls. They came into the lives of the people. And they said, I'm going to live with you. I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to give myself away all that I have. So that I can bring the gospel to bear on your life. And make you a follower. A greater follower of Jesus Christ. And lastly, we practice demonstration. That is, we show them how to live. By our gospel infused, authentic and humble example. We open up our lives so that people can see us, not as perfect people, but as committed followers of Christ and his gospel. And what we're seeking to show people is how to know the gospel and believe the gospel and live inside of the gospel and bring the gospel to bear on every area of our life, whether it's parenting or paying bills or dealing with a neighbor or whatever it is. That's what we're seeking to show people how to do. It's so important to see. We all see by... By, or we all learn by seeing and watching examples. I think of um, the documentary Forks Over Knives, and this is a documentary that's seeking to make disciples. Uh, if you watch it, it's a whole documentary on espousing a whole foods plant-based diet and, and calling people to uh, chuck animal protein. Um, and in the documentary, they highlight the, the, uh, the practice of doctors Matthew Letterman and Alona Puldi. This is a husband and wife doctor team. And... Um, these doctors are passionate about making disciples of people by healthy eating and wellness uh, and through, through the diet and through, through natural foods. And they just didn't tell people what to do. In the documentary, you see how they took time to invest in the relationships of their clients. They took them grocery shopping to the store to teach them how to read labels, to find out what was, to learn what was nutritious and show them what to avoid. And then they came home with them and they cooked with them time and time again, to teach them how to make the meals and eat healthy and do this. this is, they were so committed to making disciples that they immersed themselves and gave themselves away 
and, and showed these people by example how to live and be a disciple of this kind of, this kind of diet. It was the same thing with Jesus. He showed us so much how to live, how to love people, how to pray, how to deal with enemies, how to care for the poor and the needy, how to trust God, how to worship, how to honor those in authority, and on and on and on. He just didn't tell his disciples to go do these things. He showed them how to do it through his life and his example. And this is what Jesus is calling us to do. Now, he's calling, all of, he's calling us to do all of these things, to be intentional, to pursue people, to give away our lives to people, and to show them by example uh, how to apply the gospel to every part of life. But he's not just calling us to do this as individuals by ourselves. In other words, the whole point is Jesus doesn't simply want everyone off fulfilling the Great Commission on their own. Here's where we get into the togetherness of this. We, we not only evangelize those around us, but we do it together in community as a community. And we do this in two ways. Together, we work as a team of to evangelize people. God has enabled everyone in the body with various gifts. And we use the varied nature of the body to minister to people we are seeking to evangelize. Notice what Steve Timmis and Tim Chester say in Total Church. By making evangelism a community project, it also takes seriously the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in distributing a variety of gifts among his people. Everyone has a part to play. The new Christian, the introvert, the extrovert, the eloquent, the stuttering, the intelligent, the awkward. I may be the one who has begun to build a relationship with my neighbor over here, but in introducing him to the community, it is someone else who shares the gospel with him. This is not only legitimate, it is positively thrilling. If evangelism is a community project, our different gifts and personalities can complement one another. The whole picture is the body with all of its giftedness working together. And we're all in our own spheres. I have my own sphere. People who I know, co-workers, neighbors, friends, relatives, both unbelievers and believers. And you have your sphere. And part of our spheres might overlap, they might not. And we're to be investing there in relationship, bringing the gospel to bear in the lives of both unbelievers and believers. We're to be making disciples, evangelizing people with the gospel. But we're also to work together as the body of Christ, as care groups as missional communities, to bring people into the community and let the giftedness of the community also work together to bring people uh, into becoming either followers of Jesus Christ or greater followers of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but we work together. Together we demonstrate the power of the gospel as a gospel community. We bring people into the community so that they can witness a community transformed by the gospel. You see, everybody has community out there whether it's a biker gang or whether it's an online chat forum or whatever you have as your community. What we're trying to do is as we are immersed into the culture, as we're, as we're out there on our own making disciples, we're also not just wanting to do that by ourselves as a family or as individuals. We're seeking to bring those people into the community so that they can see a gospel-transformed community that, according to Romans 12, loves one another, is genuine with one another, pursues good together, is affectionate towards one another, shows honor Toward each other, is zealous together, serves the Lord together, hopes together, endures difficulty together, prays together, takes care of one another, practices hospitality together, blesses and forgives one another, rejoices together, weeps together, lives in peace and harmony together. That's the goal, is that people would come into this community and go, wow, this is crazy. I don't have a community like this community. Jesus said, by, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And as we love one another, as we're transformed by the power of the gospel, people will see that this is what it means to be a disciple. And, I, and hopefully, Lord willing, they will say, if that's what it means to be a disciple, I want to be a disciple. That's the power of the community. And that's what we're to be doing together. We're not only to be evangelizing making disciples of one another, both unbelievers and believers. But we're to be doing this in community, in our care groups, in our church, in our homes, where we're bringing people into that community to experience the power of the gospel. This is the way we evangelize the world, as a community that loves one another by the power of the gospel. Well, I want to close. Let me just conclude um, with this. Our mission and our greatest calling is to be disciples who make disciples, to make followers of Jesus by evangelizing them, that is immersing them into and motivating them with the transforming power of the gospel as ordinary people in ordinary life with, who live with gospel intentionality together in community as a gospel community. Jesus ends the Great Commission with a promise. Notice Matthew twenty-eight twenty b 
And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Understand this. We not only fulfill the mission together, you and I, as a community, Cornerstone, our care groups, but we fulfill the mission together with Jesus. Jesus is with us together in this mission. And Christ promises to be present with us on this mission until the time when it draws to an end at the end of the age. His presence reminds us that he is walking with us. He is empowering us. He's committed to this mission to the end. He will triumph and his mission will succeed. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this great calling. We thank you first and foremost that you have made us disciples, that you pursued us through the gospel. You, you gave yourself away. You showed us by your great example what love truly is. And you drew us to yourself. You opened our eyes so that you immersed us into a new reality and a new identity and a new purpose to live for you in your glory. Lord, that's what we long to do so that we can become like you and live with you forever. Lord, we want others to experience this. We love you so much that this is the greatest thing we could do to others is love them by making them greater lovers of you, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who is not a disciple of you, Lord Jesus, I pray that they would see your beauty, that their eyes would be opened by your spirit to behold your glory in the face of Jesus Christ to see what you have done for them by dying on the cross for their sins and that they would embrace you by faith, long to live with you, to know you, to love you, to trust you, to glorify you and to become like you. Lord, help us to to live this passage out in our homes as individuals and in our homes, with our families, in our care groups, as missional communities and in this church and everything we do and everything that we Give ourselves to Lord. Help us to have this kind of intense gospel intentionality where we evangelize people relentlessly, whether they know you or not. We pray that all of this would lead to your glory, the fulfillment of Daniel 7, that you would be lifted up, that you would be glorified by people from every nation and every language, serving you and worshiping you forever. We can't wait for that day to see you face to face to see this mission fulfilled. Lord, until that day, help us to fight to fulfill it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.